25 seconds left to play. You're listening to the Matt Wyatt Show. I want winners. This crowd is alive. You play to win the game. Wyatt from the shotgun, two backs alongside. Knock him out, John. Wyatt gets the ball. It won't be long. Wyatt back to throw. Wyatt looks. Fires toward the end zone. Passes. Caught for touchdown by Matthew Butler. Speak to the Matt Wyatt Show. He's Radio Wyatt. Well, how am I going to go to college? I'll just play football. Football, yeah. I hear you, Jerry. Welcome into the show. Live from vacation. (laughs) Yes, um, if you've tuned in this week, you know that I'm coming to you uh, from our uh, vacation condo. The Farm Bureau Studio, uh, the normal Farm Bureau Studio, packed it up in the car. And drove it south down here to these white sandy beaches on the coast of Alabama. And so I'm in a condo. And to dis- describe it for you, I um, I went down. I, I grabbed one of these beach chairs, one of these foldable chairs that you can take with you and sit out on the beach or whatever you want to do. And I went down, grabbed one of those, came in, set it up here, kind of had my studio set up in one of the front rooms here at this condo. You know, all the equipment and headphones and microphone, all this kind of stuff and computer. And I sit down and for about an hour, I'm kind of going through the normal show prep here before we actually begin. And I realized this chair is still soaking wet from uh, sitting there at the edge of the ocean (laughs) yesterday. It never apparently uh, dried out, Roger. And so, um, yeah, man, my rear end's wet right now in a wet chair. (laughs) It's a first here on the show in the Farm Bureau studio, but that's how it is right here during the second week of July. Welcome in. I'm Matt, and I'm connected to you because of C Spire, the number one network in Mississippi, C Spire, customer inspired. So um, another friendly reminder, this time next week is SEC Media Days, and I think it's going to happen Monday through Thursday. It used to be a three-day event, I think starting the last couple of years, it moved into a four-day event. They split it up. and um, Initially, when they expanded to 14 teams, they didn't initially expand media days to four days, but recently they've done that. So I think you're looking at Monday through Thursday of next week, so still one week from today it will be going on. And uh, it's yes, it's called the unofficial start to the college football season by a lot of people in the media and even at times by the conference, but it sort of feels that way too. And this year with a calendar that moves the football schedule up and everybody playing games in the month of August, it means that it, it, it's going to happen a little quicker than we are used to also a week earlier than we're used to. So uh, yesterday – they announced the list of attendees for each school. Got a couple pieces of news for you here and then an article that I want to tell you about uh, here on the show. Just a friendly reminder, too, you can be a part of the show. You can tweet me at Radio Wyatt. I'm always looking at Twitter there during the show. You can text the show on the text line or call me on the Divinity Equipment phone. Divinity Equipment in Madison and in Jackson, your Kubota dealer, 
the oldest Kubota dealer in the U.S. Uh, give them a, a, a look there. And if you haven't got a chance to go by, just check them out online, DaviniEquipment.com. A couple of pieces of news. The SEC released yesterday the names of the athletes, the players that are going to attend uh, SEC Media Days next week for all the schools. And so we'll look at them in alphabetical order. They're sent out in alphabetical order, so I'm going to look at them that way with you real quick here. Uh, for Alabama, they obviously are going to send Tua Tonga-Valoa to Hoover next week, so you'll get to see and hear from him. Linebacker Dylan Moses and wide receiver Jerry Judy. All three of those players at Alabama sending the media days are juniors. Jerry Judy, in terms of pro potential, he, he might have the most. I think obviously they all do, but Tua going to be a high draft pick as well. Arkansas, they're sending three seniors there to represent the Hogs. Running back Devwa Whaley, linebacker Dijon Harris, and defensive lineman McTelvin Ajim. They all three are going. Auburn, let's see, <coughs> excuse me, Auburn uh, also sending three seniors. Um, how about that? Two on defense, one on offense. Uh, offensive lineman Prince Tegawanogo. And then for Auburn, two defensive linemen, Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson, two stars on that Auburn defensive front. So uh, Florida, they're going to send a quarterback. Felipe Franks will represent Florida, the junior QB, as will senior running back for the Gators, Michael Pirine, and defensive lineman Jabari Zuniga. They are seniors, and then you have the junior QB going. For Georgia, you're going to have quarterback Jake Fromm next week, and he's a junior. You're going to have a defensive back, J.R. Reed, and then Georgia also going to send offensive lineman Andrew Thomas, a junior who will be leaving school early and going into the NFL, big-time prospect. What about Kentucky? Um, Athlete, receiver, kick returner Lynn Bowden from Kentucky. Uh, Cash Daniel, the linebacker, the senior on the all-name team, Cash Daniel. And then uh, senior offensive lineman Logan Stenberg for Kentucky. LSU is going to send quarterback Joe Burrow. He'll be a senior this year. Junior defensive back Grant Delpit. A lot of people think he may be the number one player in the SEC. And uh, junior center offensive lineman Lloyd Cushenberry for LSU is going to go. For Ole Miss, you got quarterback Matt Corral, who is a freshman, who will be representing his team at SEC Media Days. How about that? I think if I'm looking at this list, I think Corral might be the only freshman on the entire list. Um, offensive lineman, the senior Alex Givens of Ole Miss, and then their linebacker, who's a junior, Momo Sonogo. Uh, Mississippi State is sending two seniors and a junior. Senior tight end for Rod Green, senior center Daryl Williams, and then junior linebacker Errol Thompson. So uh, a couple of offensive guys, one defensive guy, all upperclassmen for state. Missouri going to send a quarterback to media days. Kelly Bryant, the transfer from – Clemson, Kelly Bryant will be a senior. So he's going to go and represent Missouri. And I think that um, they have a chance to have a good team if everything works out for Kelly Bryant. You know he can play. And I think he's going to be a, a very interesting interview. People are going to flock to Kelly Bryant at Media Days next week. Uh, so that will kind of be a home run for Missouri. Cale uh, Garrett, the linebacker, and then Demarcus Acey, the corner, also from Missouri. South Carolina sending a quarterback in Jake Bentley. He's a senior, along with senior linebacker T.J. Brunson, senior wide receiver Brian Edwards for South Carolina. 
Tennessee going to send their QB also, Jarrett Garantano, Big Tall Jr. Um, and then you have linebackers, two of them, Daryl Taylor and Daniel Batuli. So two seniors and a junior for uh, Tennessee. For Texas A&M, they're going to send their quarterback, Kellen Mond, who's going to be a junior this year. And defensive lineman, junior Justin Matabike. And then their punter, Braden Mann. How about that? A senior punter for Texas A&M is going to go to SEC Media Days. He'll be the lone specialist at Media Days as a player. So, again, I think it's an interesting interview opportunity. And then Vanderbilt, they're going to send senior wide receiver Kalaja Lipscomb, uh, tight end senior Jared Pinckney, and then uh, senior running back Keyshawn Vaughn going for Vanderbilt. So that's all the players from around the SEC. They announced yesterday that will be at SEC Media Days uh, next week. So the high points are, you know, the list of quarterbacks that you have going. Kellen Mond from Tennessee, Jake Bentley from South Carolina, Kelly Bryant from Missouri, Matt Corral from Ole Miss, Joe Burrow of LSU, Jake Fromm of Georgia, and Felipe Franks of Florida. That's your group of QBs who will be there next week. And then the fact that Matt Corral from Ole Miss, he's listed as a freshman. Won't he be a sophomore? Yeah, I mean, he was a freshman a year ago. He did not redshirt. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think he was under the four-game threshold that would allow him to continue to be a freshman. So even though he's listed as a freshman – Am I crazy? We'd have to look that up. It's neither here nor there. We don't. It doesn't really matter his age. We know that he is their QB. He's just, as I can see it, he's the only underclassman, period, freshman or sophomore, who will be going to uh, SEC Media Days for any of the teams. And then uh, for State, um, you got a bunch of line of scrimmage guys <laughs> uh, tied in for Rod Green, center Darrell Williams, and linebacker Errol Thompson. So you have that. Uh, so that's one piece of news. We'll come back around to that later and discuss it. There may be some guys who've been left out. And then um, this I saw some news overnight. It's kind of a chuckle, uh, a laugher, even though it is a, a real piece of news. The headline was Jeremy Pruitt commits an NCAA violation for congratulating his alma mater on a basketball championship. So here it is. A tweet landed Jeremy Pruitt in uh, hot water. Tennessee's football coach mentioned Plainville High School, his alma mater, in a congratulatory tweet from his verified Twitter account in March. Pruitt's tweet wasn't even directed to Plainview's football team. It was in response to their boys' basketball team repeating the state champions. A Tennessee Compliance Department staff member saw the tweet and notified Pruitt and a football staff member responsible for social media that the tweet was an impermissible endorsement of a high school team and its coach. They had to delete it, the tweet, that is. And apparently it is in violation of an NCAA uh, rule. Level three violation, but again, which don't amount to anything, any penalties whatsoever. Uh, It's just the latest example of uh, there are lines drawn in the sand and NCAA rules that make zero sense whatsoever. Um, without even really going into you know exactly which rule and which statute uh, that it broke. Well, it, it's uh, an athletic. It says an athletics department staff member shall not promote or endorse a prospective student athlete's team or coach, or an athletics facility that is primarily used by prospective student athletes by tweeting 
congratulations on the state championship to the school that he went to. And it's not even football, it's basketball. It apparently was in violation of that rule. Uh, If you ever needed another example of, you know, I don't know, the ridiculousness of some of the minute rules that are out there in that rule book for the for NCAA coaches, there you go. There's a great example of how silly it is. Hey, I mentioned to you also there was an article I wanted to tell you about. Uh, y'all probably remember the name John Talty. John was a writer for the Clarion Ledger back years ago, um, five, six, seven years ago, whatever the time frame was. He moved on from there and now uh, primarily – works for AL.com, based in Birmingham, uh, does some freelance work as well. And so recently some of that freelance work led him to write a piece for Athlon Sports about the Egg Bowl rivalry. Now, it published at the beginning of the month. I saw his tweet yesterday, and I went and read the article. Uh, I was one of the ones, a handful of people that John talked to, um, for this piece and got quotes from. Let me give you the high points. I'll tell you where it is. Again, it's at athlonsports.com. Don't know if it's a printed version or not, but it's at athlonsports.com. John Talty on Twitter. He has a blue check mark if you want to go look for his link. Uh, the title of it is Ole Miss versus Mississippi State, the nation's most unsung and perhaps bitterest rivalry. And that's what it says. That's the headline. And um, it chronicles the beginnings of the rivalry, which has been written about a lot, but it's a very well-written piece on his part. And it goes back to uh, 1926. Ole Miss fans swarmed Scott Field looking to tear down the goalposts in Starkville after ending a long losing streak in the rivalry. Opposing fans grabbed wooden chairs in response, smashing them over the heads of uh, of those reveling in their defeat. That was in 1926. Uh, there's a story in here about in 1905, Mississippi State marched in the state capitol with a fake Ole Miss baby inside a big pine coffin following a 1905 win in the rivalry. <laughs> um, there was a time in 1918 when 500 Ole Miss faculty and students staged a mock funeral for State for Mississippi State in the campus chapel after Ole Miss won in 1918, the band played taps during the fake funeral. You have a lot of those different things that it highlights over the years. Let me give you a few of the quotes. There's a quote in here from Rick Stan. Uh, I'm sorry, Rick Cleveland, uh, the longtime sports columnist. The quote was, "They just absolutely love to hate each other." <laughs> that maybe that's the definition of a love-hate relationship, but. They love to hate each other. Um, Here's a quote in this article from Bob Lynch, the co-founder of SB Nation blog Red Cup Rebellion. Here's what it says. Quote, so much of this comes from this insistence between the two programs of who better embodies what the potential of Mississippi can be and which football program can better serve as this positive force for the state. Mississippians are looking for something positive to latch on to, and Ole Miss and Mississippi State fans want to own that and be one of those things. That's a quote from Bob Lynch. There are a lot of interesting quotes uh, in the piece. Uh, Rick Cleveland uh, is in there a couple times. Also, though, Jackie Sherrill is quoted. It highlights some of the history when he was hired. 
um, Steve Robertson quoted, he said about Cheryl, he said, he was really the guy who gave us Mississippi State people our pride. Jackie was the first one to really spit at Ole Miss in the face and dared them to spit back. Cheryl's quote in here says, it goes back to, I own the farm and you work the farm mentality. Cheryl says, Mississippi State, when I went there, had a lot to be proud of and stick their chest out, but that wasn't what was portrayed. And that came from the dominance of Mississippi over Mississippi State on the athletics field. How about that? And he's, you know, he calls them uh, Mississippi. Uh, there's a quote in here from Ross Bjork in this piece. Uh, again, it's at athlonsports.com, written by John Talty. Uh, Ross Bjork said, you get that taste in your mouth. We want to knock them off. They want to knock us off. And then you throw some of the off-the-field things that have happened and have no place in the sport, and it heats up even more. That from Ross Bjork. And so it goes into the modern times and what happened with their the Ole Miss uh, NCAA stuff and freeze and all that kind of stuff. And this is kind of what I'm getting to. There's a quote in here from me. John called me, and we talked a little bit. I, I'm not necessarily the best historian on the egg bowl and all that kind of stuff i'm not a i didn't grow up with it you know i guess my first 18 years of my life i was in alabama i didn't really learn about the egg bowl too much until i went to school at mississippi state but this was my quote in the article it said uh, there's been a lot written and said about toxicity in this rivalry and i think all of it is complete hogwash if you look around the country the rivalry and the residual negative effects of it has never reached the level of what we've seen in the Alabama-Auburn game with people getting shot out in the yard on the Saturday of the Iron Bowl. <laughs> That's the quote in our uh, out of our conversation that John used. I stand by that. Um, <clears throat> I know about, you know, obviously the Alabama-Auburn thing, kind of grew up around it. Didn't grow up in it, but grew up around it. And I know uh, what it's like and kind of what goes on there. Every year there are stories and bad things happening, and it's all based on that rivalry. That is a literal thing. There have been people that, over arguments regarding the Iron Bowl, have shot each other, or one has shot the other. We had the Harvey Updike thing, where he goes and poisons the trees there at Tumor's Corner in Auburn. And frankly, I don't care what you say and what part of history you pull up, what incident you pull up in this rivalry, Nothing in the Egg Bowl rivalry has ever escalated to that. That's just the truth. So I was just a little bit offended last year uh, when I saw, like, for instance, Kirk Herbstreet. I think a lot of him as an analyst, I think he's a good guy, but I thought he was very out of line when after you had the supposed fight, people called it a brawl, and to even call it that in last year's game is just bull because, I mean, it was so benign, the whole thing. It's just a little pushing and shoving. Lasted a little while, but everybody freaked out like, you know, people were cutting each other with knives or something. It was ridiculous. It wasn't even really a brawl. I just and, – and everybody freaked out. And then he gets on national television and proceeded to kind of point and, and look down his nose and talk about the behavior and this rivalry for a guy from Ohio State. Look up the history of Ohio State football and the incidents that that school has had over the years. Coaches punching opposing players, literally punching opposing players. Look up some of the history and the stuff that's happened in that Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. It's far worse than anything 
100 years ago or now that has ever gone on in the Egg Bowl rivalry. So for him or anyone else to point at the Ole Miss state rivalry and make it out to be something that is too toxic and is terrible, you know what? It's, it has never even come close to approaching the the nastiness and literal consequences that have come out of the Alabama-Auburn rivalry, the literal things that have happened in the Ohio State-Michigan stuff. So the so the rest of the country that, that wants to look at the state Ole Miss-Egg Bowl rivalry and, and point at it and talk about how nasty and toxic and all it is, can all of them kiss our collective butts? And that's – I hate to be – you know, so clear with it, but that's how I feel about it because it's not realistic. Is it nasty? Yeah. Are they all? Yeah. Has it reached the level of some of these others? No, it hasn't. And frankly, it probably won't because it, one thing that's different about this state is a lot of people involved with the rivalry are all sitting next to each other in Sunday school the next morning. And frankly, I'm not sure you can say that for other rivalries in other states. You know what I mean? So... That's why I think it's hogwash is because the narrative of this thing is that because it's a heated rivalry and frankly, also a lot of this toxic talk and about how nasty and toxic it is and all this here recently, it's it's coming from people who are on the underside of the rivalry right now who don't have the upper hand. That's the way that works also. All right, I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. A long ways to go with you here uh, today on this Thursday, including a countdown of 100 teams in 100 days, which continues right around the corner. You all stick around. On the show, I'm Matt. Here in the Farm Bureau studio, Farm Bureau, go with the home team. They are the home team at Farm Bureau. Local agents, friendly service. That's what you get at Farm Bureau. That's what you ought to get anywhere, but you do get it with Farm Bureau. I can promise you that. So back on the show, continuing here in hour number one. Got a countdown coming up. We're at 51 days, 51 days from right now. It'll be August the 31st. And we'll be putting the football on a tee and playing ball. 51 days. Man, it won't be long. Like that uh, old saying, it will, like the uh, monkey who sat his tail on the railroad track. <laughs> it, will, uh, it won't be long now. Yeah, and uh, appreciate the feedback. Uh, got a lot of feedback on a question or two that I'm going to get into here on the show. One was uh, on Twitter yesterday. Had a lot of interaction with, with all of y'all about um, – players from uh, athletes that that played in a different era that if they were to play now they would be just as good or dominate just as much as they did back then and who those are my choice was Bo Jackson but a lot of great comments and questions and um or or suggestions and so we're going to get to those and I had a Facebook not a poll but just a conversation going on over on the Facebook page facebook.com slash radio Wyatt about takeover players and and I don't know that – and I'm sure it's been used before, but it's something – kind of a term that I started using several years ago. It made sense to me um, to 
you know, use that term not only as a as a as a qualifier for some players, but as a separator for others. Because as a fan, if I say to you, this particular guy is really good, they can do this, they can do that, they can certainly do their job within the team, but they are not a a takeover type of player. It's not going to be someone who's going to completely individually just take over a game. So it's fun to take a look at who are the takeover players, examples of those, and they don't come along too often. Um, One example of a takeover player that I came up with is Cam Newton that one year at Auburn. Um, Earlier in the year, he was kind of getting his feet wet. State almost beat him there in Starkville that year. But as the year went on, he showed that he he was just so head and shoulders athletically gifted above everybody else that he was capable of single-handedly taking over a football game. And um, so he was an example of that. And we've got a bunch of other names that were suggested in that conversation too. And um, we're going to get to those. We'll go through some of those later in the show. Um, yeah, and let me know what you think about the um, quotes and the comments in the um, Egg Bowl piece written by John Talty over at AthlonSports.com. I would, uh, I'd be happy to know your thoughts uh, on that. All right, so as mentioned, 51 days, and team number 51, Arizona. The Arizona Wildcats. Bear down, Arizona. You know, and, and one thing in looking at Arizona's uh, schedule this year, it just jumps out at you again. Uh, what a what a cool thing it is for fans out in the Pac-12 and fans of the Big Ten that if you root for a team there, you get an extra conference game every year compared to what you get in the SEC. They're only playing three non-conference games, and they're playing nine opponents from their own league, which is pretty cool. Uh, this year, Arizona going to start off with uh, three games that are winnable for them. They'll open the year at Hawaii. How about that? How about that scheduling if you're a football player at um, at Arizona? It's like getting a bowl trip to begin the season. They schedule a road trip at Hawaii. And Arizona is one of these teams that's going to open the season a week earlier. Instead of waiting until August the 31st, Arizona and Hawaii will actually play on August the 24th. Um, so, uh, that said, you'll get a chance to see Arizona early in the month of August if you want to watch a little college football. So, they're going to play at Hawaii on the 24th, and they'll take that weekend of the 31st off. So, they effectively have an open date on the 31st when everybody else around the country is getting started. Um, and then Northern Arizona and Texas Tech, they'll host those two non-conference games. And then there you go. Because of nine conference games, Arizona jumps into Pac-12 play at the end of September, and everybody they play the rest of the year is a conference team. UCLA, uh, home games against UCLA, Washington, Oregon State, and Utah. Road games for Arizona, Colorado, USC, Stanford, Oregon, and Arizona State. And, um, you know, not necessarily predicted or expected to be a bowl team at Arizona. Uh, this year, if they do, it would be um, 
kind of bucking the odds. Uh, I guess, you know, they're projected to be in that five-win range. But uh, anything can happen. Kevin Sumlin coaching Arizona. Last year's team, uh, they started slow, finished slow. Uh, started the year with back-to-back losses. Lost to BYU. Close game for Arizona last year uh, in that season opener to BYU, 28-23. And then just got throttled in week two of last season at Houston. Houston beat them 45-18. to But then um, they had a stretch uh, in the middle of the year from middle of September on into the you know, first part of November where they won five of their next eight ball games, and most of them were in conference play. They had wins over Oregon State, over Cal. They upset 19th-ranked Oregon, beat them 44-15, to huge upset. Beat Colorado 42-34. to And their conference losses in there in the middle of the season in that stretch were UC, yeah, USC, Utah, UCLA. Finished the year, though, kind of slow. They finished on back-to-back losses. At Washington State, they got beat 69-28, to just, just throttled. And then turned around the final week of the year and lost to their rival, Arizona State, 41-40. to So what was really tough about that is, you know, um, that team for Arizona last year, they're playing their rival, Arizona State, final game of the year, sitting there at five wins. They need to win it to get into a bowl game with that sixth win and lose 41-40. to High-scoring game, very entertaining but didn't get the win, so we'll see how they uh, respond to it this year. But, again, I just can't go uh, get away from I keep going back to um, it's just a better scheduling model. Um, it's simple. They uh, have taken the approach of, you know, we're not trying to outthink the room here. Um, they're just going to play three non-conference games and then play nine in-conference games. They do that in the Big Ten. It's an advantage for the fans. Uh, it's certainly an advantage for television, uh, the games that they get, more attractive. The SEC um, around here, you know, I wish they would do it. I'm for the nine-game conference schedule, do away with one of those non-conference deals. Um, others feel differently, obviously. The league, I think at this point, they, they – I think the SEC has looked at it like, number one, we're not going to do this uh, out of a reactionary strike that say, hey, well, Pac-12's doing it, Big Ten's doing it, so we better do it. Not going to do it and be reactionary in that way. And until they see um, some negative for not doing it, um, like, I mean, to this point, it has not kept teams out of the playoff. Uh, to this point, it has not, having only eight conference games in the SEC, has not really affected strength of schedule as it is viewed by you know, the committee and stuff like that. If it ever were to get to that point where not having, you know, the, the same kind of schedule is affecting SEC teams and their strength of schedule and all that, then they might decide to do it. I just think that from a ticket sales standpoint and what fans want standpoint, I think you ought to do it. But nobody's asking me. So, <laughs> just my opinion. I just want to see it. I want nine conference games on the schedule. And only three non-conference. One of the three non-conference is a Power 5 opponent. Now we got a schedule that's worth buying all your season tickets. I think it solves one of the problems you might have. All right, rolling right along. Who are takeover players that you remember? That's coming up next here on the show. I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Stick around.
back on the show. I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Farm Bureau, go! With the home team. Takeover players. An individual capable of single-handedly taking over a game. I want you to name one. By the way, hat tip to the uh, JSU Sonic Boom. Get ready because here I come. The kind of player, a takeover player, the kind of player who could look at the opponent and say, hey, get ready. Just buckle up because I'm taking over. Here I come. <laughs> you like that? All right, so from a professional sport standpoint, the obvious answer there right off the bat is Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan in the NBA, uh, for me, there is no comparison still to this day. Uh, And he was the most takeover player I think I've ever seen, maybe in anything. And that's pro. Now, I didn't clarify, when I put this on my Facebook page, I didn't clarify that I was kind of thinking from a college standpoint, but it didn't matter because it could really be all over the map. Uh, But a ton of comments. I posted it on Facebook last night, facebook.com slash Radio Wyatt, and a lot of comments there. And it just said, takeover player, an individual capable of single-handedly taking over a game. Name one. I got it started. I named Cam Newton at Auburn. That one year at Auburn, 2010, as the season went on, from about the midway point on, he would just single-handedly take over games. And it was because he was a dual threat and a dual threat at 6'6", 265 pounds, who ran a 4'4", literally in the 40. At his size, the size of a, of a defensive end or a tight end in the NFL, he literally the foot speed in outrunning defensive backs. I mean, you you literally have safeties and cornerbacks who are drafted by NFL teams who run four fives and four sixes. This is a guy who ran a four four. He um, was just Superman, and so he could. And once they started figuring it out, he got really confident. It was because he was true dual threat. Make any throw on the field, throw with a velocity frankly, that you didn't see a lot in college football and was accurate, but could take off running. Nobody could tackle him, and uh, he would just take take over games. He did stuff nobody's ever done. That Iron Bowl win for him that year in Tuscaloosa. In Tuscaloosa, 100,000 people, and Alabama's up 24 to whatever it was at halftime. And he led them on a comeback in the second half. and just took over the game individually. You, you'll never see anything like that again in an Iron Bowl. So I thought Cam Newton an excellent example of a takeover player. Let me give you some of the comments, though, that have come in here. I don't really – let me see if I can put them in order. <clears throat> Excuse me. Somebody just recently commented Earl Campbell. That's a guy who, yes, was a takeover player played in an era where there were a lot of people running the football like him, but um, a vote for him. So, uh, John Luke on there commented and said, Darren McFadden at Arkansas. Y'all remember that? The wild hog offense that 
who was it? Well, I mean, Houston Nutt, but wasn't Gus Malzahn a part of that, or did they hire Malzahn right after that? They might have hired him right after when they had Mitch Mustaine uh, there go to Arkansas. Anyway, um, yes, the wild hog offense with Darren McFadden. He would. You're right. He was so good he would take over games. You know, it was only running the football. Uh, West Stroud commented Dak Prescott. Um, here's an interesting one, and I think that this has some merit. You talk about takeover players. Eli Ferguson commented and said, I watched Reggie Bush go for over 500 yards in a game in 2005, and it was unlike any single game performance I'd ever witnessed. Look, I think we do probably at this point now going on, what, 14, 15 years later, we forget just how incredible Reggie Bush was in college at USC. He was like the runaway Heisman winner. Uh, He did things running the football in college that we really had not seen before. Yeah, so I think it's a good one. Reggie Bush, and he was. He was a guy. He was on a really, really good team. Great players all around him. Those Matt Leiner at USC. uh, Pete Carroll coached national championship teams in the early 2000s. But he really was kind of a takeover player. He'd get going, and nobody could do anything with him. He'd just completely take over a, a college football game. We got a funny comment on there about Bobby Boucher. Yep, he did. He took over one in the movie. Now, here's one. This is a guy I looked up to as a kid. Derek Thomas. Uh, Chris with that comment. Derek Thomas at Alabama and Derek Thomas with the Kansas City Chiefs was an unblockable pass rusher. Now, and I'm I'm saying that in a very, very intentionally. I'm not just trying to throw that word unblockable out there to make a point. Derek Thomas at Alabama and then in the NFL for the Chiefs was an unblockable pass rusher. The numbers that he put up in college were, I mean, does he still have the record? For a long time he had the record for sacks in a game, and they just couldn't block him. He would just disrupt everything. Um, I think Derek Thomas absolutely was a takeover player, and that's the thing. He took it to the next level also. Now, we there was there was more than one comment um, for Vince Young at Texas. Uh, Matt commented Vince Young, and there was a few other. Uh, Timmy, uh, Timothy commented Vince Young. Vince Young at Texas, he um, – I think if we go back and then we watch – Vince Young, quarterback in, at Texas in college, was, you know, we we probably our, our memories of him are a little bit tinged by the fact that it was a washout in the NFL, but it shouldn't be because when he was at Texas, yeah, in that dual threat system, kind of the first iteration of a of a, a you know running and throwing quarterback at the highest level of college football, he was it, and he could take over games as well. But I still say that after he did it at Texas, I still say that Cam Newton came along and did it even better. At Auburn, that's just, you know, my one man's opinion. Um, there, was a, there was a thread of comments about Jackie Parker going way, way back. And I, if you're interested, I hope you'll read that. There was some historical context there from Junior on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio White in the comment section about going way back. Jackie Parker was, you know, somewhat unknown, but, but very much could take over games. Herschel Walker uh, is a comment here that I think that you know deserves you know a tip of the cap. Pete said Archie Manning was a takeover player. He talked about that Tennessee game for him, 
Eric said Lawrence Taylor. You know, in the NFL, Lawrence Taylor was an unblockable pass rusher as well, no, no doubt about it. Uh, uh, several other people mentioned uh, McFadden. Brian Kennedy mentioned Charles Woodson of Michigan. If you all remember, Woodson was primarily a defensive player and a kick returner. They may have used him a little bit on offense that I remember, uh, and it pretty much got him the Heisman, right? They they awarded Charles Woodson the Heisman instead of Peyton Manning at Tennessee back in the day. And Woodson uh, was really good. I, I just don't know that you would classify him as a, a takeover player, like a guy that would completely take over, um, you know, a, a sporting contest. My friend John Pitts, the sports editor of the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal, said Don Staley. He watched Don Staley, who's now the coach at South Carolina, play uh, college basketball and said that, you know, she was that kind of takeover player. Like she would just completely individually consume the game. Uh, got a funny comment. Somebody said Al Bundy from Polk High School. <laughs> sure. Another for Bo Jackson. Uh, Tim Tebow at Florida, a takeover player. Several people commented Johnny Manziel. And I think that's another one, too. Um, if you want to talk about college guys that are takeover players, the fact is, again, the pro experience maybe tinges what we think about Johnny Manziel, but it shouldn't because Manziel, if you remember 2012-13, they just couldn't do anything with him. And he would. He would individually – take over games and play his team to wins that they otherwise would have had no chance. I mean, go back and watch that 2012 game, A&M at Alabama and Tuscaloosa, really good Alabama team. And tell me another player who can make those plays and make that win happen. Um, He just had a little something extra, a little something extra kind of it going on, certainly. So really good list, fun exercise here in July. I enjoyed that. Hope you all did as well rolling along with you here where that music come from it wasn't time for music yet <laughs> not yet we'll get some music going a little bit later um yeah no but a fun exercise here in july i'm going to do another fun exercise later in the show and it was something i had on my twitter feed last night and that is uh you know the the era to era players like a player from another era days gone by, that even though it was a long time ago, that would be just as dominant and just as good if they were playing right now. This came up one time earlier on the radio show, and you'll remember I I immediately went to Bo Jackson because he's the one for me at the top of that list. Um, But I think he certainly does uh, apply. So what do you think? And there's a whole bunch of comments there on Twitter as well, and we'll get some of those in there. Um, so that's all coming up. All right. Now, here we go. Time for the music. JSU Sonic moving to the break. Ending hour number one for us, and we'll get into hour number two. Talking about those era-to-era players. And did you hear? We know who's going to SEC Media Days. All that and more. Stick around. <laughs> 